Ladies and gentlemen, now hosting the Rizzo cast, put your hands together for Steven Risotto. What is happening, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 62 of RizzoCast. I'm Steven Risotto, joined with Jasper Lindsay. And today we are joined by Shay Hillenbrand, played parts of seven years at the big league level, two-time all-star infielder, played with the Red Sox, D-backs, Blue Jays, Giants, Angels, and Dodgers. And Shay, just real quick, I saw a note on Twitter that um, there's been a few guys that have homered for the Dodgers and Angels in the same season. And Albert Pujols joins you on that list of three. So it's Tim Wallach, you in Albert Pujols. So that's cool, man. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. There you go. So he Albert joined you on that list. So you guys are on a so I guess there's where you could put your name with Albert Pujols. I mean, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I came up with him. I actually played with him in the played against him in the Arizona Fall League. So yeah. Yeah, that's, and he, that's it's, awesome. it's amazing that he's still going. Uh, but it's nice to have you on the show. Um, you know, we're gonna get into your career and post career in just a second, but we always like to pick former big leaguers' brains about you know today's game. Are you still watching baseball? Are you still kind of keeping up with what's going on in, in the league? I never watched, but first and foremost, thank you so much for having me on. I, I appreciate this opportunity with you guys' time and, and thinking about me to add value to maybe you, to your to your listeners. But uh, I don't watch baseball. I never watched baseball when I played. I, I've watched one full baseball game my whole career, my whole life, matter of fact. So when I finished playing, obviously, other than the games I played in, um, I, uh, I sat down one day and I said, I'm going to watch one full baseball game. And I sat down and watched the Yankees. I don't even know who they played. This is like right shortly after I retired. And uh, I wanted to butt, I wanted to headbutt a butter knife. I like, I, I just couldn't sit still. Like it drove me nuts because I'm one of those guys, like I'm super like, like I'm super committed. I'm super competitive. And I just analyze the heck out of the game. Like, okay, he's throwing this pitch here. He's doing this here. Why do you swing at that pitch? Why is this dude hitting 210, man? Like it's so hard to hit 210 in the big leagues, man. Like if you hit 210, we have a problem here. So like, I mean, one year I hit 265 and I was like ready to you know, do myself in. So um, yeah, I don't watch too many games right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, you said you don't watch too many games, but the game has definitely changed since you last played. What are you seeing in the game today that was different from your playing time? <laughs> and it's funny because I think about like, maybe like what I played, like the old timers, I guess I'm an old timer now I'm 45 uh, that, that played before us, you know, you guys don't know crap, man. We had all these drugs in the game and we drank beers and hot dogs before. And, and then I was kind of like in the steroid era of, of steroids being prominent 2003, they started kicking that in or, you know, kind of like, you know, pushing that out with the Mitchell committee. And then towards the tail end of my career, that's when you start really taking uh, uh, your fitness and, your recovery and taking care of yourself seriously. Um, I think just as a generation whole, I think the perspective shifted. I think we don't know how to navigate failure. I think now failure is not, you know, it's, it's totally accepted. I was talking about this yesterday in a podcast where like, okay, when I failed, when I played, like, I use that failure to go, okay, how do I analyze this? What do I need to do? How do I make this adjustment? What do you do? Go, go I have to go work. I have to go put in extra work. I got to do extra study. I got to do this. Got to refine this skill. I got to make this adjustment here. But now it's like, okay, the game's morphed around this failure and the long ball. And okay, you could hit 210, which is an astronomical failure. I don't care what anybody says, any analytic or whatever. That is a huge failure as an offensive player, as long as you could throw up 25 or 30 home runs. So, you know, the, everything's just shifted to where it's like, when we get through, get to the point of failure, what happens from there is that for the vast majority of people that goes into, you know, fear creeps in and then self doubt. And when you have self doubt, you become a softer person. And then what you do is you go to areas to uh, mask or to numb those pain points. And from there, like, this is, it's crazy, man. Like, I can't tell you like how many times I got on first base because I was pissed off at the pitcher or the other team or whatever. Cause Uber, I was hoping the guy behind me would hit a ground ball so I could blow up the second base with a shortstop and a double play. 
Like I would just do to barely touch the bag with my hand and I do everything I can just to blow up Alfonso Soriano or blow up Jeter because they're the Yankees or whatever. Nothing out of the disrespect for them, but this is like, that's how we played the game. And then busting around third base, dude, I wanted to put my face to the to the chest, to, you know, protector of a catcher if he's blocking the plate, because I know that if, you know, if I don't, if I, if he gets there before me, he's going to try to blow me up. You know what I mean? If I'm coming home against uh, Veritech or someone like that, like, like, it's just like no holds barred, but now it's just like, you can't even do anything. You know, like, like if you're stealing signs when we're playing, dude, you're getting the ball to the, the head. Like, like you're like, I hit a game winning home run off Marlon Rivera at Fenway park. The next day I got to one, two count. I have an event. He threw the ball at my head. Just to, not to hurt me, but this is in the signal. Hey, work. You got me yesterday, but you're not going to get me again. So we've taken that out of the game, and it's one of those things to where, you know, the game evolves, society evolves. We have all these matrix now. We have all these uh, areas that we can study the game. But where I struggle is it's petering down. It's trickling down to the high school level. It's trickling down to the youth level. And we have these coaches that are trying to emulate what these guys are doing in the big leagues with launch angle. How do we have mechanics with the swing? all that stuff. And it's just ruining kids. Kids are not having success at all. They're not having fun. And with the fast paced society, it's the gratification, all that stuff. These kids need some sort of instant feedback and they're not getting that. So I think the coaches are ruining the game. Wow. Yeah. That, that's some, and I guess the league office, um, cause they, you know, you can't slide in the second base hard anymore. So um, that's definitely, uh, it, it definitely calls on them too, or the, the blame should fall on them for the game, maybe not being the same, uh, but would you it's protecting <laughs> assets, right? Is it, yeah. Like we're huge assets. Guys are making a ton of money now. You know, uh, Latroy Hawkins put a post today that we're in 2019. There was a bunch of pitchers that were going to free agency. The free agent market was a, a plethora of pitchers. what did they do? They juiced the ball. Then you get Alfonso, whatever, the first baseman for the Mets, hitting 52, 52 home runs as a rookie. Mm -hmm. Like, that's asinine. That's like that's like steroid era numbers. And then last year, kind of like a mediocre season with, you know, with the, you know, limited games. And then this year, like a lot of shortstop, a lot of offensive players are going into free agency. What are they doing now? They're taking the juice out of the ball. So the, the league is running it. It's a huge monopoly, right? This is a billion-dollar corporation, and it happens to be an entertainment. And that's all we are. I don't care what anybody says. We're entertainers at the end of the day. All we're doing is entertaining people. So it's a billion-dollar corporation, and MLB is running it just like every other billion-dollar corporation uh, you know, around the world. That's just how they do it. So you mentioned that you got thrown at the head after hitting the, the homer off, off Rivera. Uh, nowadays, I mean, we see the, the, the bat flips. Are you into that stuff? Are you into all the celebrations or would you, you know, what are your thoughts on kind of the celebrations in today's game? Yeah. I remember playing first base in Toronto and Manny came around. He was, you know, it was Manny and Ortiz, a uh, big poppy. I mean, I just played with the dudes the year before, like we were so close and I remember Manny pimping a ball, like barely running. He was running first. I was just screaming at him, dude. I was like, dude, freaking run, dude. Like what the hell are you doing, man? This is, but Manny's in his own world, you know? So we got to understand this, you know, like there's a dichotomy of, of, of uh, regions. There's, there's, there's the Latin America, you have Asian America, you have North Americans, uh, you know, all these different people that bring the way they play the game uh, to Major League Baseball. So from my experience, because in the clubhouse, I hung out with the black guys and I hung out with the Latin guys. So I got really close with these guys and they say, okay, we celebrate because we're so happy. Like we're celebrating like the, this is like my turn, like a quote unquote, like the baseball gods. Like we're celebrating, like we're so appreciative. That's why we're doing that stuff because that's how we play the game with where we're from. So I have a baseball academy in Mexico. It's south of where I'm living in Arizona and it's about an hour south of the border in Puerto Penasco, Mexico. They have a, uh, they have a, a professional team there too. They do the same thing there. Like they, they have cheerleaders, they have the bands, they have the bongos, they have all this stuff. Like they're celebrating something because they live life a different way. So when you're in these, these islands, they're living in a third world country. So the way they celebrate, they do that. Like it's, man, these people grew up with like living in huts, some of these guys and, and like dad's working in factories, mom's working on carts in the streets. And, and like, like they come from a place of like such a different experience of life to where they don't give a crap what you say. Then you have the Americans, especially the white guys are like, dude, this guy's disrespecting the game. This, well, is he, or is he celebrating the game because he appreciates what he's doing. 
I always said, you know, if you're going to celebrate, you're going to pimp or whatever it is, you better back it up because the game will kill you. This game will tear you apart, spit, chew you up and spit you out. And we play 162 over six months. You're playing every single night. So when I hit a game-winning home run off Mariano Rivera in April in 2002, I hit a game-winner in the eighth inning, and he was on second, into the net, and I couldn't celebrate. I couldn't celebrate because I knew the next day I had to go back out and do it again. But most importantly, I couldn't celebrate because I was playing that pain-driven game that so many of these athletes do, so many Major League Baseball players do, is because we attach our identity to what we do. This game demands so much of us as players, and we have the, the organizations, and we have the game, and we have the MLB. Like, they're playing with our dream. I've been wanting to do this since three, four, five, six years old. I had a baseball in one hand love on the other hand, pursuing that dream, just like you guys did when you were a kid. So I just happened to be so lucky, stars aligned, did a lot of hard work with the opportunities I got. And then, man, I'm there. But where I struggle with is that 87% of Major League Baseball players, this is swept under the rug. And this is where I want to share my voice for Major League Baseball players or minor league baseball players. 87% of Major League Baseball players, when they're done, they lose all their money, they get divorced, and they have a chemical dependency. So what are we talking about? What are we talking about right now? We have to work on the player. We have to work on the person, the person behind the player, because we have no idea who we are outside of what we do. So it's very toxic. So we're actually just trying to survive while we're out there. You guys don't see it. You guys can't see it because we put on a good front. We know how to perform once we get on stage. We lock into that tunnel vision. But man, we're struggling with our marriages. We're struggling with our families. We're struggling with our money. We're struggling with our identity. We're struggling with ourselves internally. We're struggling with who we are, but we're taught to perform. If I just perform and if I go out there and hit the baseball, I can have success. And I can go out there and make a ton of money and they'll give me an opportunity. But at the end of the day, what does that matter? What does that matter at the end of the day? I don't know who I am. I don't know how to navigate those pain points in my life. If I shift it, if I have a negative perspective about those pain points that drive me to the top to be able to go out there and perform every single night in front of 40,000, let me tell you what, there's not too many things I experienced that were greater than suiting up in the clubhouse, walking down to the tunnel, getting ready to go to war every single night. That feeling you get is pure euphoria. It's, it's ecstasy. It's adrenaline rush. It's dopamine release. It's go time. It's fight or flight. And that's crazy because we do that every single night. But check it out. We don't just go out there and just go to battle. We go out there and battle in front 35 or 40,000 in the stadium. That feeling that you get is asinine. Then you become addicted to that as a player. And now you don't want to leave that. So everything revolves around that. Your marriage sacrifices, your as a parent sacrifices, your relationships sacrifice. I never knew how to carry on a conversation. But you throw me a 2-1 slider away at 93 miles an hour, I put it off your face. So it's crazy how this operates. So when you see, when you say about bat flip, I tell you, know, Tatis, okay? Tatis, the dude's making, what is he, 24, 23, 21, 22, making 300. Like, where are we at? What does that matter? If he goes home at night and he doesn't know how to sit, sit with himself and be complacent and like, under, not complacent, but to be able to sit there quiet in a space and live with who you are. So what does it matter if you're a Trout? What does it matter if you're Bryce Harper? What, what does it matter if you're a Machado? What does it matter if you're, uh, what is it, Bauer with the, with the LA, uh, the pitcher? Like, what does all this stuff matter? Because at the end of the day, we're just people just like you. So it's extremely challenging for us and it's totally swept under the rug. And it's like, dude, pull up your bootstraps because I'm struggling too. So I don't give a crap what you're doing. So toxic where it led me to be one breath away from losing my life. So it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you talk a lot about the path you took to the big leagues and I mean, coming out, it's either you're a four-year university high school guy. You went to junior college in Mesa in Arizona what can you tell me about taking that junior college route? And do you think that kind of helped you build yourself as a person a little more? The only option I had. Yeah. <laughs> I was a number one soccer player in the state of Arizona at a high school. My childhood dream going up in LA was to play major league baseball. So I'd, hit, I'd sit at the top deck of the stadium. My mom had season tickets, my best friend, myself, and her. I had my chocolate malt in one hand, my nachos in my other hand. And I'd sit at the top and say, you know what? I'm going to be down there someday. 
So what happens is so many people that are listening to this and watching this podcast don't understand the superpowers that we have as people. So if we, if we don't know who we are because we're numbing our pain because we don't know how to navigate, navigate the daily life, what happens is visualization is a number one tool that we have. So I'd visualize myself down there. I didn't even care about the players. I didn't even care about getting autographs. My favorite player was Steve Sachs. So that shows you how much I didn't care about the players. He couldn't even throw the damn ball to first base. All right. But he was an underdog and he was a guy out there like the runt of the litter that just made stuff happen. So I had to visualize, I'd hear the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd. I'd smell the grass. I'd feel the buzz of the crowd. I engage my senses. And most importantly, I'd hear myself now batting number 29, Shea Hillenbrand over the PA announcer. But from there, I'd go home at night. I'd lay in bed and envision, envision being in front of being in the stadium, what it's like breaking it down to the minute detail of that. So I had no chance to play anywhere out of high school. I barely made all city. I walked on at Mesa Community College and made the team because of my work ethic. I was the first guy there, last, day, last guy to leave. You hear this stuff all the time, but you don't see it. You see guys that don't know how, what it's like to commit. You have to be obsessed if you want to pursue a dream to the level of that. So I was there every single day. I couldn't even hit a baseball when I got there. After my sophomore season, I became the number one player in the state of Arizona. I broke three, five of the eight offensive categories, like rocked it as a shortstop. I got drafted by the Red Sox. I go tell all my friends, I got drafted by the White Sox. I had no clue what team I got drafted by at 20 years old. Not 18, 17, at 20. They're like, what are you talking about, dude? Like you got drafted by the Red Sox. They're like one of the most prestigious teams in history of baseball, 1918, Babe Ruth. And I'm like, wait, 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 I'm a Dodger fan, man. We show up in a third, leaving the seventh to beat traffic, listen to Vince Scully on the radio. And for two, I don't give a damn what socks it is. I'm going to the big leagues. I don't even care what you say. So I lived in the batting cage. I just went and worked and I worked and I worked. And I observed, you have to be observant. You have to be aware of what's going on around you guys. You have to be aware of doing who's doing podcasts if you're doing podcasts. You have to be observant. You have to study. You have to do this. I go up to a coach. Can you help me with this? Oh, oh screw you. Can you help me with this, dude? No, 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 no. I'll screw you too. So I was like a, like a bull in a china shop. There was like, dude, I was on a reckless abandon of getting to the show. So I didn't care who it was. So in three, five years, I got player of the year, three of the five years. I quit after my first year. I hated it so much, but I went back because my identity. I was chasing and I was running away from that pain I felt from my adolescence. So do I really love baseball? No. Do I appreciate it? Yeah. Do I have a respect for it? Yeah. But you know what I really love? I love helping the players. I love helping the kids through that platform because I gained skill sets that very few people in the world have the ability to ascertain. Because skill sets have utility. So whatever you're doing, you have to gain those skill sets. So from a junior college route, I go to get drafted and you go to spring training. And what happens, you have the high draft picks that walk around, that got that chip on their shoulder. I'm a badass because I came out of high school and I'm number one in high school. I came from a D1 school. I actually played with a guy that just won the World Series for the Florida State. Uh, he came a little bit late my first season and I just tore him up. I said, you dude, you're a big P-U-S-S-Y, dude. Like, get the hell out of here, bro. I'm going to crush you. Get on the mound, dude. I'm going to crush you because I worked. I trained. I mastered those skill sets. I had repetition after repetition, man. I swung a baseball bat a million times. I'd be an idiot if I couldn't hit a major league fastball, right? A million times. 60,000 times in the offseason. Over and over and over. Running from that pain. or Trying to numb that pain. And then you have the guys that are low round draft picks that are like, dude, I have no chance. The first rounders get all the opportunities and all the first rounders get all the money and all the first rounders have the idea like I'm going to get all the opportunities so they don't take advantage of that. And then you got the guys down here that like, I'm not going to have an opportunity because those guys get all that. So they don't take advantage of it. And you got the guy in the middle that knows he has it, that just needs one opportunity. And that's the junior college room. That's the guy that comes in, takes care of business and just works and works and works. And that's it. That's simple. Yeah, and, and yeah, we always we always wonder this for players. What but what is the mindset for you like, you know, first coming up to the big leagues? Was there kind of like a sense of confidence? Did you feel like you belonged right away? Was there something to prove right away? How did that work? You get immersed, that's a great question, bud. You get immersed in what you do. This is my dream, dude. 
I've been working on this my whole life. So once I get that opportunity, I have to do everything I can. See, just check it out. There's two things you can control when you go into a situation. And this is where so many players lack. Because I'm telling you, dude, there are so many better players in AAA than the big leagues. It's insane. Because I've rehabbed. I've been down there. I'm like, what are you all doing here? Like, dude, you guys are like so much better, but I, I figured it out. There's two things you can control when you get to an opportunity. How you prepare for it and how you present yourself. How you prepare for it, what are you focusing on? How are you ingraining information? How are you mastering the skill set to gain utility? You want me to play third base? I'm going to go master third base. You want to play left field? I'm going to go master left field. You want to play first base? I'll go, oh, catch? Never caught before. I'll go to Australia, but I'm going to catch better than any fool around and because I'm, I'm going to learn, right? And I'm going to get in that cage and I'm going to hit. And I'm going to hit. I'm not changing my swing. I'm not going to a launch angle. I'm not reconforming my whole swing like they're trying to do now, which is ruining the game. What I'm doing is where I'm refining it. I'm trying to make a one one hundredth or one one thousandth of a percent adjustment with the swing that I have. My swing from little league to two time all-star in the big leagues never changed ever. It's just a matter of understanding how to do it. That's how you have success in the long run. So what happens is you have to prepare yourself for that opportunity and how you present yourself. What do you focus on? So when in the batter's box, there's two things I focus on. When do I start? Read the pitch. When do I start? Read the pitch. When I read the pitch, bam, my intuition is going to kick in because, it could, because I put the countless hours in in the cage. So many of these guys that, that are playing, they go into the cage and just go through the motions. I'm not going to hit off the tee. That's the best training tool you could have. Have a four-step focus on the, on the off the tee. Location where I'm going to hit it, focus on the ball. Start my swing, achieve my load, and then feel the movement. Where am I going to hit it? Look at the ball. Achieve my load? Feel it. Where am I going to hit it? Look at the ball. Achieve my load? Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. And if I hit the ball up there, if I don't want to hit it up there, don't feel that again. It's a feel. So you're ingraining that into your file cabinet, your nervous system. And then once you identify, read that pitch in the game, it just goes into your nervous system. It pulls out that swing. Bat! Here goes another one. Bat! Here goes another one. Boom! Here goes another one. You keep pitching me inside. i got to make contact here. You pitch me away. Here, up, here. But you just... Guys don't work. You have to work with intention. You have to be intentional when you work. Yeah, so take me to 2003. You're traded back to Arizona. What was it like coming home and playing for your home state at the highest level you can? Divorced. I felt like I got divorced. I felt like I, did, I wasn't wanted. I felt like I was all Boston. I came up through the Red Sox. I, Boston's a blue-collar town. Boston is red-nosed fans, like, dude, in your face, like, let's go. Let's go, dude. We have so much passion for you guys. We want you to win so bad because this is what we do. It's six states. It's a nation. And at that point in time, at my second, uh, third year, um, just came off an all-star year, starting at third base in the all-star game. I was hitting seventh in the lineup, and I was leading the team in RBIs. May 29th, not even two months into the season, I had 49 RBIs. Manny Ramirez had 47. I was leading the team in our, this bam, bam. And I was like, dude, this is like all I know, right? It's the only organization I've been with, but it's not, it's, it's a very special organization. And when I got on the plane to go from Boston to Toronto to play the Blue Jays with the team, Johnny Damon comes up to my seat. He's like, dude, we just traded you to Arizona. And I was like, what? So I was the first guy Theo Epstein ever traded. I sat in his, his hotel room. He was 28 years old. And I think I was 30, 20, I don't know, same age. And uh, I just wanted to rip his head off because not because of him I had zero to do with him I had everything to do with that pain that was driving me, that pain of experiences with my father. So when I got traded, I felt like I wasn't wanted. When I got traded, I felt like I, I, I wasn't good enough for that team. I didn't understand. I wasn't in the position to be able to comprehend what the game was like, what the business is like. So when I got traded, I felt like the biggest piece of crap. My, my career was over after that. After my third season, it was over. I was slated to be a $100 million player, 330, or at least 300, 30 home runs, 100 RBIs. That's me. I could have done it. I knew it inside. That's, that's irrelevant. It's just what I know. I couldn't do it because that story I told myself, I'm not lovable. I'm not good enough. My dad doesn't love me from experiences. This is what's relatable to everybody. So it's super bittersweet. Coming to Arizona, I'm at home. I, you know, I'm here. I went to high school here. I went to do college here. You know, it's cool to be here. There's so many perks of playing at home, but it's Arizona. Like ninth inning, Matt Mantire, closers on the mound. Like we're closing out the game. If you do this in Boston, the stadium's going to collapse. It's like crazy. I'm there, not a peep, 42,000 people. 
in between in, in between pitches, the crowd goes crazy. I thought somebody was running on the field. I thought it was a, a streaker on the field because ninth inning, you do that in New York or Boston, that's a streaker. I'm looking around, no one. Baxter, the mascot, is doing backflips in the stands. The, the, the fans were looking at the mascot. And it's just like, really, dude? Like, this is like crazy, man. So uh, my road in my career was all revolving around that pain. It was all revolving around escaping that pain. I felt like Michael Jackson, and I'm very sensitive when I say that because I can relate to what he went through because he had so many internal struggles. He had an internal zoo that he was incarcerated in. It's funny because he had a zoo and I had a zoo um, that his childhood was taken from him, from his environment. My childhood was taken from me because of the way I perceived my environment, not my environment, the way I perceived my environment. And I created the stories in my head with the perspective of the pain I experienced. So I felt like Michael Jackson. The only place I felt at home was in the batting cage or in the, on the field in the batter's box. That's it. Everywhere else, I hated it. Other than the first and the 15th, that's when we got paid. Yeah, and Michael Jackson probably only fell home on the stage. So uh, definitely. That's, all, that's how it was. Yeah. That's how, that's how it was with him. And it's sad, you know? Mm-hmm. And, it, and, it, and, it, and if you look, if you peel away the layers of the onion, and you can see why people do the thing they do. So I'm fascinated with that, guys. I'm fascinated with what causes people or what drives people to make the decisions they make and take the actions they take, right? Because we all do it, regardless if we're in the spotlight or regardless if we're just the average Joe every single day. What is it? It's those pain points. It's the perspective we form. And then we don't, we're not able to step into that power that we had. Yeah, hundred percent. And I'm sure the thing that you get asked about most is, you know, the, the incidents in Toronto and, you know, maybe not feeling as respected as you thought you should have been. And there's the, the incident with John Gibbons and, you know, I'm sure that, I, I mean, I don't know, I can't speak for you, but do you look back at those incidents now and go, God, what was I thinking? Or is, or is there some like a, maybe a deeper reflection on what happened down there in Toronto? When I left the game, I hated myself. I hated everything about me. I had a ton of money to where I could mask it. So I could do whatever I want. And that's what this, that's the scary part of it is. When I left the game, I always try to justify the actions that I took because I was, I was experiencing pain. I was experiencing pain in my free agent year, actions after action after action. But John Gimmons just had to be on the receiving end of that, which was completely 100% and to my teammates and to the coaching staff and to the fans and to everything, uh, unfair, uncalled for, and extremely disrespectful. But check this out. To put it in perspective, that's what I was able to do. So now I look back, I understand 100% why I took, took the actions I took and made the decisions I made. On Canada Day, not many people know this. We're wearing Canadian jersey. I get taken out of the game late in the game, and I am livid. I am experiencing so much pain, but I'm making so much money, and I'm performing so well, like, like crazy. I go in the clubhouse. I go to the training room. I grab scissors that you cut tape off, and I'm cutting up the Canadian jersey piece by piece, not this like, like, like carving this thing up, like taking out my anger, taking out my frustration on this Jersey. That's ego. That's pride. Trying to cover up that pain. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. It's stupid. So for me, I tried to run from that. I tried to justify that. And I tried to prove to so many people that I wasn't that person because I'm not that person. This is the person I am when I figured out who I am. So that passion that I have now that you're seeing is being fueled by love and excitement. But before it was feeling pain and that pain was horrible. There was only one thing I was scared of my whole career. Not many people understand this. One thing I was scared of, not hitting a 101 mile an hour fastball from Verlander, not going out there every single night in front of 45,000 people, not, 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 not worrying about my job and, and performing and, and, and getting, dude, I hated defense, dude. I hated when ground balls were hit at me. I hated it. I sucked. I have no clue how to field a ground ball. And I was a two-time all-star third baseman. That's why it's how you work and how you prepare yourself. There's only one thing I was scared of. And that was myself. I was always scared of what I was capable of doing. So I'd retract. I was this raging lion inside this incarcerated zoo inside of my mind and my, my inner being that when let loose, those instincts kick in and I will kill you. Meaning that those instincts like the lion to where it's like, if I perceived you as a prey and I'm a predator, I'm going to do everything I can to let you know that I am going to take advantage of this situation 
because I had this incarceration of this zoo, of these experiences, of these stories and all these perceptions and all these, all this pain and all this hurt and all this guilt and all this shame with everything that I did. So every incident that I did playing Major League Baseball was driven from that exactly. So it was horrifying. It's horrible. Like, like who wants to be on ESPN saying that Shea Hillenbrand has a cancer of the Blue Jays? Like, got in a fight with John Gibbons in the clubhouse. All this stuff all over ESPN. Like, it's mortifying. It's like, like you just want to die. So at that point in time in my life, I was making $5.8 million and I just wanted to die. Matter of fact, the year before I make the All-Star team for the Blue Jays. I was set to go home for the three days. I want to fly home in my private jet and spend time just to escape, escape the pain because that pain was attached to the game. We're going on the field in, in Fenway Park as the Blue Jays were playing the, 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 the Red Sox and I'm walking the field for batting practice. John Gimmons comes over to me daintily because he's worried about what the hell I'm going to do because I was a complete asshole. And he reached out his hand and says, congratulations, you made the All-Star team. The players voted me in. And I was like, what? I made the All-Star team? I was pissed. I was livid. I'm going home. I can't even process. I'm not even in a position to understand that I'm living my childhood dream, making millions of dollars doing what so many kids do in the United States want to do. And I'm doing it and I hate every aspect of it. So I fly home. I take a Citation 10 jet, the fastest civilian jet in the world to the All-Star game from Chandler, Arizona to Detroit, Michigan to play. I'm flying 64,000 feet going 640 miles an hour, pilot, co-pilot, 10 multi-million dollar jet myself. I'm looking out the window. I can't see the ground. I'm so high. You know what's going through my mind? fucking hate myself. I hate everything about this. So how can you put perspective to an, or, a, an incident with John Gibbons in the clubhouse? How do you justify that? How do you take a stance on it? You can't. But what you can do is peel back the layers of the onion, and you can actually rewrite history. You can rewrite what happened with your perspective of that, because that perspective of what happened in that clubhouse, what happened with me on the radio with Theo Epstein calling him a faggot on the radio, which is despicable, which I would be like, dude, like I would punch myself in the face right now if I saw my teammate doing that. It's insane. So what happens is you could rewrite history. So what I did is I peeled back the layers of the onions and I went back and I said, why did you do this? Why did this character in your story play the game that way? Why did your story play out that way in that chapter of your story? And when I peeled it back, I saw that. I reverse engineered it. Actions, decisions we make, come from our beliefs and values. I didn't have any beliefs and values. All this stuff, reverse engineering, goes to these five things. It goes to pain and pressure. We all experience it. It goes to perspective from that pain and that pressure. And your experiences in life are going to form that perspective and from that pain. And then from there, that allows you to tap into the power you have from within, that allows you to listen to that voice inside guiding you, that allows you to become the fullest version of yourself, or it limits you. And it drives you to a place of an abyss of nothingness. And from that from the, from the pain to the perspective to the power, then you go to purpose because you start to get creative. I never thought in my life I would ever be doing this. It's the last thing I thought I'd be doing when I was playing baseball. I was like, screw that, screw everybody. I'm going to ride off in the sunset and do my own thing and escape my internal world of, of hell. But once I pulled it back, I changed my perspective. I rewrote the history. You can't change the experiences in life, but you can change your perspective to those experiences and it makes a shift inside yourself. And once you do that, you tap into a deeper power of who you are. You discover who you are. You discover gifts and talents you never had. You discover a purity. You discover a confidence. You discover self-worth. You discover all this stuff that it's like, what I experienced in a major league baseball field, I have now off of the field. And from there you go to purpose. And from purpose, you go to profit. But what happens is so many people go to the bookends. They go from pain. I'm experiencing all this pain. And if I, if I, if I just prove it because I don't have any self-worth, so any self-understanding, like I, I'm a piece of crap. I'm not as good as other. they go to the pain or experience that. And they go, if I just get that money, if I just make this money, if I just do this podcast, if I just have the success, all that will go away. That will solve my problems. Yes, that will. But you got to go to the three middle parts, perspective, power, and purpose. If you're not living on purpose, if you're not doing something that you love to do, gaining those skill sets, gaining the utility, if you're not doing something that you love to do, and if there's something that you love to do is not making an impact and adding value to other people, you'll never, ever, ever find fulfillment. And that's the formula. Yeah. 
and I mean, you already alluded to it, but being a professional baseball player is probably the, one of the most stressful jobs on the planet. You're never with your family. You're constantly on the road and it's mentally, it just destroys you. And in your case, there were some extra uncomfortable situations that added to that, but how hard is it to be a major league baseball player? It's all perspective, right? I mean, how hard is it to stand up and do public speaking? That's the number one fear for so many people. Like, it's just like, oh my gosh, never, ever, 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 ever am I going to stand up and give a speech or talk to people? That's the number one fear. But if you just take a little step, if you just do practice, if you just do practice, if you just do practice, the stress that comes along with it starts to fall off. Now you start to stir up a hunger because you're gaining utility with that skill set. And once you gain utility with that skill sets within whatever you're trying to do, Major League Baseball, playing baseball, now you have consistency. From consistency, you get competence, competence, self-confidence, all that stuff's all relevant. So when, when you guys are rocking it in Little League, once you keep going and gaining that utility, the skill sets, it's just all relevant. It's the same thing in high school and then junior college or college and then minor league baseball. Like, how, how, how's this going to happen? Oh my gosh, well, you just keep doing, gaining more utility. You're finding those skills, becoming aware, making that adjustment. All of a sudden, it's like, how am I going to play in the big leagues? This is the last shot. You got one shot. Go out there, gain a little bit more utility for consistency. Understand, put yourself out there. Once you put yourself outside your comfort zone, that's when you start to grow. Once you get that fear, don't allow that fear come into self-doubt. From there, now you build a self-confidence around that. Now you know how to navigate that failure, that setback that knockdown, all that. So hitting a fastball in the major leagues, it's easy. 40,000, it's, it's easy. Once you're focused on what you're doing and controlling the stuff that you control, everything else is irrelevant. I can't control if they're going to play me. I can't control if they're going to, but damn, once I get that opportunity, I'm going to prove to you and force you to play me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, we mentioned off the air that, you know, the two of us are from San Francisco and we're living here in the Bay area and you actually had a stint with the Giants. And I know there's a lot of Giants fans that are listening. Um, you know, how how was your tenure in San Francisco? Uh, what was it like playing for the Giants? Because, you know, I know there's been people frustrated playing with the Giants during that specific time span because it was, you know, the world the world revolved around, around one person. And that was how Barry Bonds. He's the best player ever to play the game. Yeah. How could it not? How could it not, man? That's what that's what freaking drives me completely nuts, dude. Like when when you have like like when you have a CEO of a company, it revolves around him. Yeah. When you have someone who's producing and performing so much better, it can't not revolve around them. Are they going to get treated differently? Hell yeah. Are they going to get away with different stuff? Hell yeah. Are they going to be able to back it up? Yes, because they could do something that you can't do. And that's what drives me nuts in the clubhouse. There's no chemistry in a clubhouse. I don't care what anybody says. There's no team players. It's nonsense. It's garbage. It's, it's ludicrous. So them saying it's, it's nonsense. So what did I do? Barry's got the ghetto. He's got the side of the clubhouse. Five lockers. Yeah. Barry's over there by himself in the ghetto. I had a decision to make. I'm new with the club. It's late July, I think. I don't know. August, I don't know. And... I went over, no one's allowed over there. I went over and sat down right next to him. I said, dude, I respect you. You're the best player to ever play the game, in my opinion. I ain't stroking you off. If you think I'm stroking you off, just look at ESPN. I'm telling you the damn truth. I just got in trouble on ESPN for telling the truth. So I'm not stroking you. What I'm doing is I'm letting you know that I respect you, and I want you to teach me everything you know about hitting a baseball. He's like, man, I, I like you, man. You're my wigger, man. I'm like, let, 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 let me put one thing straight, Barry, between you and me. Let's put something straight. You don't know nothing about a ghetto. You grew up in a clubhouse. Your dad's Bobby Bonds. Your godfather's Willie Mays. You went to Arizona State. They called the coach at Arizona State and told him, don't even talk to him about hitting because we will pull him from the school. You grew up in a clubhouse. You live in a house in Beverly Park. The poor people live in Beverly Hills. He lives in Beverly Park with... Uh, Eddie Murphy, Reba McIntyre, uh, all these famous people. And, and like, don't tell me you ghetto. So let's talk real talk, bro. He's like, dude, I, and that dude in three months taught me more. He was speaking Chinese, but he broke it down to a level that's absolutely asinine, like, like scientific physics of how he functioned and operates. And then Willie Mays was in the clubhouse. And then Willie McCovey was in the clubhouse. And then Orlando Cepeda was in the clubhouse. Nobody went up to those guys. And I went in there, hey, sir, how you doing? Man, this is awesome. 
Can you teach me? How about this? How about that? It's perspective. It's perspective. Was, did, did Barry act a certain way? Yes. Did Derry have to deal with Barry? Derry? Who's Derry? Did Barry have to do, deal with his father and godfather dealing with racism in the game and being exposed to that? And did, Barry's different. So why would Barry get treated like somebody else? Like, holy smokes, who hit 74 bombs in one season? Dude's never been caught for steroids. He's never been caught for anything. We forget that. Whether he's done stuff or not, that's irrelevant. He's a human being. And he's an amazing guy. And I got to know him on a deeper level. And like, I'm getting emotional right now because this stuff happens time and time and time again. I can't tell you how guys talk to him in the clubhouse. I can't tell you like the incident of what happened when he got in a fight with Jeff Kent in a dugout in San Diego. I can't, if I told you what happened transpired from there, it would change your perspective. It would change a fan's perspective. That dude put 3 million fans in his seats for 13 years for Peter McGowan. And when Barry left, they took everything down from Barry because they couldn't handle him. Why couldn't they handle him? Because Barry operated in a different universe. You want to talk about Tiger Woods? You want to talk about Kobe Bryant? You want to talk about LeBron James? Barry's better than all of them. But he didn't get no respect because he spoke his mind. He didn't fit in. He wasn't a part of the players union. I'm not going to let the players union because it's a great business decision. Is that good with your coworkers? Probably not with the relationship, but he's not there to go out there and have a good relationship with his coworkers. He's going there to win a damn game. What are you doing in the World Series against the Angels? Everybody forgets. Now, the ball he hit off Percival. Like, like, like ridiculous. Like nobody sees that because they see someone speaking their mind. When you see someone speaking their mind, which is the truth that doesn't go against you, that doesn't go with you, you know what happens? Now you treat it like a cancer. That dude's the cancer. No, 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 he ain't the cancer. You are the cancer. But y'all are covering up the cancer because everybody's doing the same thing over here. He's just calling you out. That's just how it is. It's crazy what happens inside those walls of the clubhouse and on that field. I was in Barry Bonds' batting. We, we hit in the same batting group. He's 42 years old. And what this guy did, I can't explain it. I don't even care about baseball. My opinion, best player ever. Just mic drop, turn it off, whatever. Don't even talk about nobody else and say, good dude, but you got to give him a chance to pull back those layers of the onion because he's got pain points there. He's got stuff that he went through. He's got stuff he's going through now. How is he not in the Hall of Fame? When guys are in the Hall of Fame that, that, that did the same things that he did but didn't get caught. He didn't get caught. They didn't get caught. They're in the Hall of Fame. I know exactly what these guys do. <laughs> and there it is. So what is it? Politics. You don't play the game within the game, you're going to be an outcast. Absolutely. And I mean, I think it seems like MLB more than anywhere has their own kind of set of rules and how you have to carry yourself, how you have to act. But take me, so you're 30 and you decide to step away from the game. A career. 32? Yes, sir. All right. So you're stepping away from a game and in a career that kids across the U.S. can only dream of obtaining. How hard is it to leave the game behind and move on? Easy. It's easy for me because I was running from that pain. What people don't realize, fans don't realize, I'm 45 years old now. I still have dreams about playing in Major League Baseball games. I had a dream last night that I was going to go hit, I think you're playing Detroit. I think I was with the Angels. And I was DH and I, and I couldn't find my batting glove. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to go hit. I got to perform. I got to take advantage of this opportunity. I got to show them because they're trying to get me out of here. I need to prove this. Like at 40, like that's my past life. It gets so ingrained into your DNA of what you have to do because you have to sacrifice so much. You have to be obsessed for what you do that it's just like, it's crazy. So I'm sitting on the couch after my seventh season at 32 years old, my firstborn son in my arms. All the accolades, all the accomplishments I had on a major league baseball field was insane. Three home runs in one game, all that, whatever. It's, it, it was cool. I did a lot. I always wanted to be a dad, just like so many other men out there. And I was having a father-son moment. And I was just looking in my son's eyes. I have three adopted children. I was so blessed to be able to have God choose us to be his father or his parents, me to be his father. I'm looking into his eyes and I see nothing but a pure, abundant joy and a bright future. And I was just trying to connect with that love I have for him. I so deeply loved my son and I couldn't connect to it. All I can connect to is that pain, that guilt, and that shame. And so many of us experience that at the major league level. 
we're not going to show it to you because we perceive it as a sign of weakness. If we allow you to see something, you're going to use that against me to get me out of here. 22,000 people all time in 100 years to play that, I can't show anything. I got to put up walls. I got to disconnect. Uber unhealthy. It's crazy. It's so toxic. I'm sitting there. I'm numb to everything and everybody around me. Right there with my son in my arms in the prime of my career, I quit. I walked away. Made the biggest decision of my life. I walked away. I left. I didn't talk to my wife. I didn't talk to my advisor. I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't talk to my agent. Nobody. I'm done. Signs to deliver. See you guys later. I left $50 million of potential earnings on the table, and I convinced myself to come home to be a father to my three beautiful children and to pursue my second dream of owning a zoo. Everything would be great. And it was. But what happens? Pain comes with you. Its perspective comes with you. Once that money starts dwindling away, once that fame and that glory and that status are removed from you, now you're left with you. And what are you? I was just a bag of nothingness, trapped inside of a zoo, incarcerated like that lion, just docile, just surviving. So I went from living to merely surviving. So I attached so much pain to baseball that it was easy to leave. But that's all I knew. And I didn't realize my identity was attached to it. And once I was away from that, it was extremely difficult to function in the real world uh, without that identity of, oh my gosh, Shay Hillenbrand, you play for the whatever. Yeah, and I mean, in interviews, you talk so much about purpose and self-realization and baseball not necessarily fulfilling that purpose. What advice do you have for people who are at a similar crossroads when it comes to kind of numbing their internal pain and trying to figure out who they are as people? If you numb your pain, you don't understand who you are. If you numb your pain with whatever that is, when I say numb the pain, I'm talking about food. That's the number one thing that people numb the pain with. Get all this processed food, get all this crap. And all these big, big companies are leveraging the pain points and the weaknesses of our society. And dude, I'm just going to go through a drive-thru. So when I left baseball, when I lost my firearm, when I lost everything, like when I met my wife, I was fat, bald, and homeless. Like I was fat as heck. What I did is I'd blast Adderall to dumb the pain, and then I'd, I'd take Red Bulls, and then, then I'd go through the drive-through to keep trying to get those dopamine hits, the instant gratification, to numb that pain to escape from it. So it's drugs, alcohol, sex, pornography, gambling, uh, food. Then you got Netflix, and you got social media. Then you have Amazon. All these things are right at our fingertips, and we're all of us in society are using this to numb that pain, to escape, and to run away from that pain. And nothing, you'll never achieve anything. So what happens is you lower yourself into complacency and mediocrity and you get shackled into the status quo that society has created. So now you have other people telling you what to do. So now when we have a pandemic, people just go ape shit, freak out, nonsense. Not to take anything lightly because I, I respect it, it's seriousness, but so is hitting a 100 mile an hour fastball. I know it's not life or death to do that, but it's like, okay. And then and you have the politics. Now you have Trump in this and the Biden this. And it's like, it's, just, it's, it's nuts. And then you have, you know, uh, the racial tension, which is, which is totally... Uh, understandable, but it's just the way that it's handled. It's all disarray. Why? Because everybody's running from that pain. Everybody's running from that pressure. Everybody's trying to numb that. And it's at our fingertips right now. All of it. Anything that we could do to escape. So what happens, you have to be aware. The first step is you have to have awareness. Where's my pain points? What am I doing? Where am I at? Am I on track? Am I, am, I, am I cheating on my girlfriend? Am I cheating on my wife or my spouse or my partner? Am, am, I, am, I, am, I, am I doing this promiscuous stuff? Am I, am I like talking behind people's back? Is, what am I doing? Where am I right now? Where was I? I was at a place of disparity. I was a scared little boy. I was hurt. I had pain, disgust. I, I, I hated myself. So how could I like anybody else? I can't love anybody else. I can't do anything else. If I'm doing that, all I'm trying to do is feel that pain inside. So you have to have awareness. And the second step is people are aware of where they are, but they don't accept it. You have to accept it. You have to own it, dude. You know what? I am a piece of crap right now. I'm in a spot right now to where I'm just struggling. I'm in a spot right now where I'm going down the wrong path. I'm in a spot right now. I'm thinking of a major leaguer that's like, I'm making so much money. I have so much fame. I'm treated like a God. Like I'm telling you, man, I walk down the street and it's like, you're God. I'm telling you, like you go into a restaurant, you're a God. You step on an airplane, you're a God. You like you got women all over you, you have people all over you, you have kids like, oh my gosh, you're the best thing ever. And, and inside, they can't see that pain. They can't see that deep, deep pain, feeling that pain-driven game. And what I'm doing is like, like I'm one breath away from making a decision of cheating on my wife. I'm one breath away of making a decision to go to this drink, go to this drug, go to this stuff, the massive stuff as a major league baseball player. I'm one breath away. And when I do that, I ruin my life. I ruin my marriage. I ruin everything. Now I'm down this whole, this abyss of nothingness going and leading me to nowhere. 
And what do I do is attach my identity to baseball because I have no idea who I am. I've sold my soul to the game. The third step is after we accept it, we have to take action. So many people are like, man, with my health, like I need to, I need to lose 40 pounds. So I'm going to eat broccoli and chicken. I ain't going to work. I'm going to just drink water. Well, that ain't going to work if, you, if you're slamming big gulps or if you're slamming soda or, or energy drinks. That's not going to work. Uh, you know what? Like I need to start you know, watching my sleep. I need to get eight. Well, if you used to get two hours of sleep, you're not getting eight hours of sleep, right? I need to, like, got to be careful. So what happens is you got to practice it. You got to go to step one. Everybody wants to go to step eight because you see everybody else having success with step eight. If you guys are serious about this podcast, take exercise, exercise, practice, practice. What do I do next? And I watch the feedback on this. Okay. And I analyze the feedback. What could I have done? What, did I direct the conversation where to go? Did I let the guests do this? Did, could, can I add music here? What can I do with my backdrop? What can I do with this? When I started off with my, my backdrop, it was crap. People thought I was outside. So what are the things that we could do? You got to practice it one step at a time. When we do that, we gain momentum. And when you gain momentum, you progress. And that's where you find happiness is when we progress. When you become stagnant in your relationship, when you become stagnant in your job, when you become stagnant with your personal self, you die. I died. I was succeeding on top of the world, having major success at my profession, and I was having making massive amounts, of, tens of millions of dollars, but I was dead on the inside. I was stagnant. It's not sustainable. At the end of the day, nothing matters. So you got to have awareness. You got to accept it. You got to own it. You got to take action. And the fourth step is you have to have accountability. So many people are like, oh, I have to have accountability partner. Well, a lot of times accountability partners don't care. You have to have accountability with yourself. When you, when you don't do what you do, you have to keep yourself accountable. Because in order to have self-confidence and have self-worth and have self-esteem, you have to have credibility with yourself. What does credibility with yourself mean? Credibility with yourself means you have to keep the promises to yourself. If you say you're going to get up at a certain time tomorrow, get up. And if you don't, punish yourself. Come on, dude, let's go. We got to do this. But if you do, on the flip coin, you have to reward yourself. Good job. Let's go. Right on. Let's do this. Celebrate this win. Keep those promises to yourself. Get credibility with yourself. And you have to do it there and prove it to yourself. Like myself, play Major League Baseball. I didn't prove anything to myself. I would have tapped into Hall of Fame numbers if I focused on myself and proved it to myself. But I was trying to prove it to everybody else to try to get accepted, to try to get approval, to try to show everybody that I was good enough to belong. Look where it led me. Yeah, and I'm fascinated by the zoo. Um, <laughs> I because I I told someone that you know I was interviewing you. We were interviewing you and mentioned that you had a zoo, and they said, "Oh, you're interviewing Matt Damon," because uh, of the movie. But uh, it, no, it's fascinating. And it, it, where did the where did the kind of the fascination of animals start with? Where was you know how did how did you gain that comfort with animals? Where did that start? Yeah, I always loved animals. I was always always always. But like I had a connection with animals, like Steve. I don't know if you guys remember Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. You guys might yes. be too young, but uh, like that was me. Like it's crazy. I just, I just, just, I felt like I had a different connection. I feel like I could understand them because there's no backstabbing. There's no, there's no BS involved. There's no gray area with an animal. I had a nine foot dromedary camel, and I had to put him outside for the birthday parties. He couldn't stay inside the stall because the kids feed the animals. Like he'd bite their fingers. So it's like James, you got to go outside, dude. Check this out. If James didn't want to go outside, he'd do two things. And I knew it. Simple. He wouldn't go out and talk crap behind my back to the zonkey. Oh, did you see what Shay did? He doesn't think I'm good enough for this. No. The camel would do two things. He'd either try to bite me or try to kick me. And if he wanted to do what I asked him to do, he'd, he'd, he'd subside. And he'd let me pat him. He'd let me. So it's like the connection with animals was my escape. It was like an escape of my internal hell. So like the world that I created when I was a kid, when I went outside to throw a ball against the wall or hit a ball off of a tee or, or kick a soccer ball on the wall, wasn't for the love of the game. It was for me to escape that world of hell and find that solitude and that peace for that half an hour or that hour. And all of a sudden I get myself lost in that. And I go down to high school and I throw the ball 300 times against the wall and I master throwing and gain my strength of my arm. But I was escaping that world because I didn't want to go back to my house because I didn't have the tools to be able to navigate the pressure and the pain in that area. So with the animals, I had two dreams when I was a kid, play major league baseball and own a zoo. I was in junior college. We sat down and like, write out what you're going to do in 10 years. I wrote it down verbatim, what I was going to do in 10 years from that day in junior college. I was the only person to get it correct. 
and they laughed at me. When I was in elementary school, they laughed at me. When I was in then everybody laughed at me. Well, whatever, watch. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do it. So I purchased a $5 million horse farm, 38 acres, and uh, I accumulated 300 farming exotic animals. And I had this vision of rescuing these animals that have been neglected and abused and abandoned and put them in a position to impact children's lives through my foundation against all odds. So from there, we'd have, I'd focus on inner city disabled and child crisis children. I bring them out I rescue these animals. I mean, I remember having sheep in my bathroom, my powder bathroom, and I'd be feeding them, like putting IVs in them and, and just caressing them with unconditional love. And it's like, that was my escape of my hell. That, that's, that's, that's me. Like that, when you peel back the layers of the onion, that's me. Not the guy that yelled at John Galen's or did that or the cancer in the clubhouse or whatever. All that was from a story that I created from experiences and the pain points of my life. So I get these animals and, they're, and they're, they'd be barely alive. Like their soul be barely like functioning, like gone. And I just give them unconditional love. After three or four days, like the light would go on in their eyes. And I'd tell, I had 15 employees. I said, put this one out there. This one's ready to go. They're like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, watch. And kids' lives would transform on a daily basis. Time after time after time. I could sit here for three hours and tell you stories of what happened at that zoo with these kids and these animals and how they impact the lives of each other. So uh, it, was, it was absolutely, absolutely amazing. But like I said, I wasn't equipped. I wasn't able to tap into that full power in baseball. I wasn't able to tap into that full power with my zoo. So ultimately, the bank account drained, didn't have any relationships because I was a very toxic person. I was fighting my internal zoo and I, I lost everything. And by the grace of God, uh, I did lose everything because that's what it took me to figure out what I needed to do to get to where I am now. Because we all have a purpose. We all have a calling. We all have a power inside of us, a superpower. We all have that in us. But so many people are running away. They're stuck in complacency and mediocrity. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Do you think if it reversed and you'd try it and somehow you were able to get the zoo first and then play professional baseball, you would have had that self-growth necessary to succeed at the highest level? No. No, no that's a great question, too. But to, to be 100% transparent, no because I didn't know what was going on. And when I was a kid, I'm, there's nothing else I'm gonna do. I'm playing Major League Baseball. Like there's no plan B, no plan A, A, or no sub, sub menus or nothing. Like I'm going there and that's what's going on. Sorry. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it, it might be hard for people, but that's, just, that's, just how, that's how it works. You gotta become, become obsessed with what you do. You gotta become obsessed with mastering the skill sets because those skill sets you gain utility. Skill sets, all of it's at our fingertips right now. What do we do with our phone? Are we getting skill sets? Or are we numbing the pain to escape a reality? All right, well, wrapping it up, here's our last question. It's what inspired you to tell your story, man? Because I mean, just listen to you talk. It's incredible. I mean, you can really hear the self-growth you've had since you played baseball, since you've done the zoo since you've hit rock bottom, how'd you get back on your feet and how do you want to convey this to young athletes across the world? Simply, I have an obsession for people not to feel the pain that I felt on top of the world because that pain is so unbearable that you don't even want to live. I can't tell you how many times I drove around after everything and said, what's the purpose of life? What is this? I did it all. I did the American dream. I did exactly what society told me I need to do, but society doesn't tell you that you have to work on yourself and to find fulfillment with whatever you do because everybody's calling and everybody's purpose has a different add value add to society. It could be a cook. It could be a housekeeper. I was just down in Mexico and the housekeeper there, she said, and she's Mexican, and she said her childhood dream was to, to take care of old people. So that's it. Do everything you can to gain the utility skill sets to, to step in that valley because that's where you find fulfillment. So what it is is that what drives me is like, I was walking in my petting zoo when I was losing everything. And I had an audible voice go over into my head. Not many people know this. And the voice said, use your voice to help people, use your voice to help people find their voice. And it stopped me in my tracks. I'm not here to debate where that voice came from in my head. I'm not here to debate how it came about. 
but it was there. So if we sit still long enough, that voice will guide us. There's a voice inside there that will guide each and every one of us if we are aware of that voice. But we're so running from that voice. We're so running from that pain that we that voice becomes dim. That voice becomes so whisper-esque. And eventually, that voice doesn't talk to us. But as I was losing everything and I was just like, what am I going to do? You have nothing. And the voice said, use your voice to help other people find your voice. It stopped me. My answer to that was, I don't even have my voice. How could I use that to help other people? But I listened to that voice, and I kept it into my heart, into my soul, and into my spirit. And what's crazy, guys, I didn't know what was going to transpire over the next four years of my life at that day and moment in time. So over the next four years, that's my, what my life raveled out of control. That's when I was so far gone that I found myself on the floor of a van. And on the floor of the van by myself, lying motionless after overdosing on drugs and alcohol, the only thing that can keep me going was use your voice. Not my kids, not my parents. And it's sad to say, as a father who loves his kids, I couldn't even think about my children to get me going through another day. It's sad. It's disgusting. But what kept me going through those times as I was clinging onto my last breath and my soul's leaving the top of my head was that you got to use your voice. But I was so tired of fighting that pain-driven game that I let go. I don't know if I died or if I fell asleep. But by the grace of God, the next day, the sun peered through the front windshield. Seven years ago, I was living in a van. I was scrounging up change out of the cup holder just to feed my kids Little Caesars pizza. While my kids are going to school, telling their friends that my, my dad played for the Diamondbacks. Try living with that. Try taking that gut punch. Where do you go? Because the ego's gone at that time. The ego just covers that up. The ego's like filling in those cracks in your foundation, just a quick fix. But when that ego runs out because that pain becomes so severe, what I held on to that next day when I woke up and I had an aha moment, I didn't have any side effects, no, side, no stomach ache, no nausea, no nothing, no headache. I should have had either two options. I should have either been dead or in a hospital. The concoction of pills I took and alcohol I drank the night before. I wasn't a drug addict. I wasn't an alcoholic. I was simply trying to escape that pain because I wasn't equipped I've put everybody out of my life because nobody understands what I'm going through. You guys don't get it. I'm a major league baseball player. That's what we think. But is that reality? It's not reality because we all go through the same stuff. doesn't matter if you're on top, in the middle, or on the bottom. So I sat there, and over the next seven years after that day in the van, I went on a mission. I went on a mission to figure out my voice. That's where my, my, my clothing company came from, 2V's Apparel, Voice to the Voiceless. There's a deep meaning behind that because so many of us don't have our voice, but when we discover that voice, we need to use that voice to impact the world because you're not going to get a better feeling. So that's what's driving me, and that's what drove me. Do I need to do this? No. Do I need to work? No. Do I want to find fulfillment? Yes. Do I want to live on purpose? I want to do what I've been called to do? 100%. I'll do this for free, but that's what it is. That's what's driving me because so many people are lost. And the thing is, is I want to share this lastly. This isn't theory. This isn't from a textbook. Like so many entrepreneurs, so many influencers, so many people doing courses, course creation, coaching, all this stuff, dude. It's all smoke blowing. Dude. They're blowing smoke. This is this, what I'm sharing and what I teach and what I do is 100% experience. And since I discovered who I was, when I peeled back those layers of the onion, what I figured out is that I need to gain skill sets every day. So I have the earpods in every day. I'm writing every day. I'm mastering the skill sets because I know these skill sets have utility. And I know my story has the ability to impact millions of people's lives. And it is what it is. We've all been given that voice, whether it's 500,000, 500 people, five people, five million, but we don't know. But if you stay focused on what you're supposed to do, find your, that purpose, find something, get creative, guys. What, what makes you tick? Are you doing a job that, 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 that you're showing up to, but you might be making good money, but it's like, ah, oh, another day. I, see, I hear it all the time. Oh, it's Monday. What day it is? I'm doing the same thing every single day. 
And I'm going out there and I'm doing what I have to do every single day to master these skill sets because I know these skill sets have utility. And if you live on purpose, the money can't not come. That's the byproduct. We have it all backwards. I was playing baseball to get noticed. I was getting based, I was playing baseball to make the money. I was playing baseball to get the fame and the glory. To get, hey, do you, when I walked into a room, hey, man, like, oh, that's Shea Hillenbrand. Oh, my gosh, dude. Oh, dude, you know, I'm Shea Hillenbrand. I hit a home run off Mariano Rivera. I, I hit three, I, I, two all-star, all-star, all that stuff. Now, I can care less. I have no ego. I don't go into a room to try to compete with nobody. I'm not, nobody can compete with me because I found out where I'm supposed to be. And where I'm supposed to be is going to touch so many people's it's my voice is going to touch so many people that nobody else can touch. So when I walk into a room, I don't have any competition. I look into the room, it's collaboration. And when you do that, you step into a power that's so deep that it doesn't matter. So at the end of the story, if I die tonight, I'm good. I found it. I found what I've searched for my whole life. Everything that I searched for with the zoo and for the playing baseball and the fame and the glory, none of that did it. I found the fulfillment because I discovered those pain points. I discovered the perspective. I discovered the stories that go on in my head, tell me that I'm not good enough and I'm not, I'm not lovable and my dad doesn't love me. I discovered those things and I busted through those limited beliefs in that BS to be able to change that perspective, to be able to rewrite history. And I tapped into a power that I've always tried to tap into that I knew I had in me playing Major League Baseball. That's why I didn't have Hall of Fame numbers. That's why I didn't play the 10, 12 years. That's why I didn't make the $100 million. And I'm cool with that. I want to make more money now. There you go. Well, I appreciate the collaboration on this podcast, Shay. Uh, your story is definitely an awesome one. Um, and I really appreciate you joining the show. Absolutely. I'm super honored, guys, and I appreciate it. Anything I can do for you guys, please don't hesitate to ask. Awesome. You guys can follow Shay on Twitter at Shay underscore Hillenbrand. That's H-I-L-L-E-N-B-R-A-N-D. Uh, and there's a documentary out that is actually uh, Emmy Award winning. Uh, and it is uh, part of the show Success in Your City. Uh, and it's the uh, identity, the Shea Hillenbrand story. So some good stuff there. Um, so go check that out as well. And you can follow the podcast, of course, on Instagram and Twitter at RizzoCast. So go check us out there. Thank you guys for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.